Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I get to welcome Carl Crawford. Welcome back. Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Uh, thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. Appreciate your time. Yeah, appreciate your time as well. Uh, can you uh, just let us know about your, you know, your life, your marriage, your vocation? Uh, what are what are some uh, current things that you're working on writing wise and those types of things? Sure. Um, well, I am married to Pauline. We have four children uh, who are aged between five and fourteen. I teach history at a college called Queen's University Belfast which is a city here in Northern Ireland which is part of the UK uh, and I'm as part of that job I do quite a lot of um, writing reading and writing I suppose as well as teaching and most of my reading and writing tends to be about the history of Puritanism and Evangelicalism and within that field I've got a particular interest in John Owen uh, John Owen was one of the most I suppose influential uh, of the Puritan theologians and certainly one of the most voluminous writers in the 17th century he wrote about 8 million words or thereabouts uh, of um, uh, theology, uh, polemic, a little bit of politics, a massive commentary on uh, the New Testament epistle to the Hebrews. Um, and I, I did a biography of Owen back in 2016 called John Owen and English Puritanism. And uh, just recently, uh, I've published a little book with Crossway called An Introduction on Owen, which is what we're talking about today. Um, some of the current projects I'm working on, uh, I've just finished the book about Christian Reconstructionism in Idaho, uh, which is hopefully going to come out next spring. And then I've also just finished a book called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland which is um, a, a book that describes the, the, the total history of Christianity on the island in which I live from Patrick uh, really to the present day so that's um, that, 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 that was an interesting really interesting project um, and that just got finished last week so uh, at the moment, I have no projects. Uh, I'm completely in holidays, uh, but I'm delighted to be speaking to you. Oh, wonderful. Well, man, you, you're definitely a prolific uh, writer and, and author. And uh, uh, have you heard of Thomas Patient then? Or Patient? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've written about Thomas Patient, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a great new book on Thomas Patient, my friend, uh, Micah Gasba. Um, Which I've read and very much enjoyed, yeah. Awesome. He'll love to hear that. He listens to this. So, yeah. Micah, you have a, you're a fan. So. <laughs> Well, can you uh, tell us a little bit about this book, An Introduction to John Owen, A Christian Vision for Every Stage of Life, why you wrote it, and how you hope it will be received? Sure. Well, the, the, this book is, as I said, it's, it's quite short because most of it's maybe, let me see, about 180 pages or something. Uh, it's just been published with Crossway, uh, and obviously it's about John Owen. Um, John Owen is often thought of as being quite a difficult or complex writer, and in term circles, I suppose, form circles, however you choose to find that term, uh, John Owen is one of a, a small number of writers who's really valorised and you know people at a certain stage uh, in, in their reading or reflection let's say are often encouraged to read John Owen or at least to buy his books um, whether or not they actually ever read them uh, and, and really one of the things that struck me writing the biography back in 2016 was that the number of occasions in which I would discover even in um, archives in, in repositories of 17th, 18th, 19th century books the number of times in which I would discover a copy of one that had never been read and it, it just occurred to me that I myself had a set of one for, for years 
before I ever opened it. And I think I've got a few friends who are in that situation as well. So I thought then, well, maybe maybe it would be useful to write a book which would be an introduction to John Owen, which is its title, and which would try to make Owen accessible, not to simplify him, but to make him accessible, to make him the kind of writer that ordinary Christians might want to read and might have a handle on and still be able to read him with some profit. So the book I did back in 2016 was a fairly straightforward biography. You know, it began when he was born, it ends when he died. It was a theological biography. It was interested in seeing how his theological ideas changed over the course of his life. But this little book, An Introduction to John Owen, I suppose turns that in his head. It's not a theological biography. It's much more of a biographical theology. So it's not asking questions about Owen's life. It's allowing Owen to ask questions about the lives of his ideal reader. So really what the book is about is Owen describing the ideal Christian life. Um, and so there's four chapters in the book, really straightforward uh, kind of structure. And there's a chapter in childhood, a chapter on youth, a chapter on adulthood or maturity, uh, a chapter on death and the prospect of eternal life. And each of those chapters tries to summarise Owen's teaching about that part of a, of a Christian's life. So, for example, the chapter on childhood begins where Owen thinks uh, a, a, a child being born into a Christian family should begin to be, I suppose you could say, enculturated into um, in, in, into the family's faith. So, in other words, it begins with baptism. Um, and then it, it, it thinks about how Owen's views of baptism change over time, which they really do. When Owen starts his ministry in the 1640s, he's got quite a high, quite sacramental view of baptism. But he, he rapidly rethinks that position um, through the 1650s and onwards through the rest of his life. He adopts a, a position using the language of sign and seal and so on that we're much more familiar with today. So that chapter talks about baptism. It then talks about Owen's interest in the ideal Christian home. Uh, and there's a, there's a book that Owen published in 1652. It's never been republished. Uh, it's, it's a little book for, I suppose, Christian families or Christian children. Um, it teaches them their letters, ABC, teaches them numbers. It gives them some passages of scripture to memorize John 17 other passages like that um, a couple of Psalms but, but really strikingly it also includes a number of written prayers prayers for the children to pray in the morning and the evening prayers for the family to say before they eat a meal after they eat a meal and, and you know as you, as you begin to read this and see that this is much more than a simple catechism it's actually a description of what he thinks an ideal Christian home ought to look like and obviously it's a home that's structured around prayer and uh, family experience of, of Christian profession and divine grace but, it, but it's also really strikingly it is it's also a home in which children are taught according to set forms. That's really interesting because if anyone has read anything about Owen or the Puritan tradition they represent, you, you, they, they would know that Puritans were often very, very sceptical of written down prayers. Yet here is Owen writing prayers for little ones to use and for their mums and dads to use with them. So that's what was really striking. And then that, that chapter ends with the moving up to profession of faith when children who are baptised as infants um, and who are taught the faith through catechism and who learn to live the faith through the spiritual life that's modelled for them in the home uh, then confess that faith on, on, on their own terms and become um, members of the churches as he would understand it uh, in his independent um, congregational ecclesiology that's a childhood chapter second chapter is about youth um, and in, uh, it, it, it tries to represent one as I suppose in American terms contemporary American terms a kind of youth master um, during the 1650s when he is working in Oxford preaching continually to undergraduates at Oxford who were really from their mid-teens 
teens up until their very late teens. So it's a, it's a what we would call teenagers are his primary audience when he's preaching away in, in Oxford during that period. And um, what Owen is doing when he's preaching to, to, to teenagers, as we would put it, is, is he is he's warning them of the dangerous possibility that their knowledge of God can be entirely theoretical. And in a way, he's, he's counterbalancing the emphasis on catechism, which he expects to uh, take place in childhood. He, he's balancing that with an emphasis on spiritual life. He, he recognises that anyone can become a theologian, but he argues that only saints can grow in grace. And so his preaching uh, to teenagers um, is, is that kind of searching quality that we often associate with Owen. Uh, and so some of the books that come out of that ministry, the book of Communion with God, uh, his book on indwelling sin, mortification of sin, those, are those books contain sermons that were preached to teenagers. And I think that's a really striking context for that. In the third chapter is about maturity or adulthood. It focuses then on life in the world, the Christian's life in the world. So how should a Christian get involved in politics? Or should a Christian get involved in politics? Or business? Or the economics of Christianity? And, and he, he talks about this in some of his uh, publications through this period as well. And, and also uh, in this chapter we think about life in the church. So one of the key responsibilities of Christian adulthood is take responsibility as a member of a local congregation and one writes at length about what that should look like. And the final chapter in the book is simply about death. So childhood, youth, adulthood, death and the prospect of eternal life is the last chapter. And that chapter thinks about um, one's own experience of death. Uh, he, he he lived in a world of death, you could say. He buried each of his ten children before uh, before he died. They all predeceased him. His first wife predeceased him. And, you know, as he's preaching towards the end of his, his pastoral career, he's, he's, preach, he's preaching as he's seeing not only his children dying, his, his first wife dying, but also members of his small congregation dying, uh, his his peers, his, his contemporaries in ministry dying as well. And he's and of course, through this period um, in the mid-1660s, there is a great plague uh, that sweeps across England and destroys a huge percentage of the population. And that's followed by the Great Fire of London, 1665-66. These are years of, of mass death, epidemic, um, very much like the circumstances of our last few months here. Um, in relation to COVID-19. But Owen's not simply focused on death, he's also thinking about eternal life um, the kind of life to which death leads um, and the prospect of the beatific vision. And he has some wonderful passages in some of his later books where he argues that the, the hope and expectation of Christian believers is to see Jesus Christ himself. That the beatific vision, he says, is not a vision of God in the abstract. It's not a vision of the Father. The Father's always invisible. But it's a vision of Jesus Christ. As he makes that claim, he's really standing on his head, a very long tradition that says that the beatific vision is a vision somehow of God himself. So, so Owen is really Christological all the way through as he thinks about these stages of Christian life. Well, that's really great. That's really great, Crawford. Um, you just touched on, on COVID-19. That, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good thing that you just touched on. Advice would you have, what would, advice would Owen have for pastors during time? What are the most important things for them to remember? Well, it's, it's a great question. O Owen did write a lot about crisis. Uh, I suppose you could say that most of his life was an experience of one kind of crisis or another uh, and, and he thinks a lot about disaster and the meaning of disaster. Now, there are some ways in which Owen responds to his providential circumstances that would be very alien to us. So, for example, in the early 1660s, um, there's a couple
couple of comets in the sky, which generate a huge amount of discussion because they can be seen uh, they, they, uh, for, I think, between eight and ten weeks, if I remember correctly, in the sky. Uh, they disappear and then they reappear, of course. What's happening is flying past the Earth one way, coming around the sun where they cannot be seen. You fly past the Earth another way where they can be seen again. And Owen looks at these comets and he thinks these comets are messages or warnings or providential warnings from God that something bad is about to happen because of England's sin and because of the failure of the church. So he sees those comets, I think it's around about 1664, 65. Later on in 1665, this plague breaks out. Uh, 1666, the plague is gradually coming under control, but not, you know, after massive numbers of death. Uh, but as the plague is coming under control, London goes on fire and a huge, huge proportion of the city's buildings are destroyed. No sooner has the Great Fire of London happened that than England, uh, England had been at war with the Dutch Republic and, and suffers a really humiliating defeat when the Dutch Navy sail um, right the way up the Thames into the Medway and, and uh, destroy much of the Royal Navy uh, in its port when it's tied up in port. So one looks at all this stuff and, and he realises that something very, very significant is going on. His question is not why do bad things happen to good people? His question is why do the same things happen to all people? And for him that's a much, much more searching question because it would be relatively easy for him to point the finger at other people whose lifestyles or beliefs he doesn't like say, well, God is punishing you. But then he has to recognise that, well, actually, you know, Christians, members of congregational churches, Puritans, suffered the, 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 the Great Plague. Their homes were burned out. Their churches were destroyed during the fire of London. They, too, suffer the national humiliation of losing this war against the Dutch Republic. So it's, much of his preaching through this period is focused in this providential question. Why not? Why do bad things happen to good people? But why do the same things happen to good and bad people? And his answer, I think, is really um, that God sends the same kinds of things on different kinds of people for different kinds of reasons. You know, he can he can look at the plague and the fire, and he can and he can simply say, "Look, this is what you need to expect. God will do to you as as a nation because of your iniquitous ways." But then he says to members of Puritan congregations, "He said, look, you've got to expect God to do this to you as well uh, because you failed him." Um, and of course, during this period, you know, Owen was really worried about the, the future of the, the, the Puritan congregation, the Presbyterian and Independent churches, because they were really beginning to question some of the, the ABCs of, of the Reformation, Dutch by faith alone, for example, uh, that Owen and Richard Baxter get into a huge debate about. Um, and it seems to Owen as if fundamental beliefs that Puritans have shared are suddenly being unpicked and questioned. And so um, he begins to argue that the same things happen to all people for different reasons. The church is being disciplined through its experience of this crisis. The world is being punished or judged in its experience of this crisis. But both are warnings. The church and the world are both being warned by God through these providential circumstances. If they don't repent, if they don't turn from their sin, then th th these are messages of greater um, judgments to come. Uh, so Owen would look at all of those kind of providential circumstances and try to explain it that way. But I think underneath it all, he would also want to say that you should set aside, you should set to one side your thinking about plagues and fires because as far as he's concerned, the greatest crisis um, are those moments people go to hell without being warned that's what's going to happen. So that's, I think that's really what he thinks crisis is, how he tried to respond to crisis, how he tried to see what the, what, what the most serious crisis of all is, which is that descent into hell to eternal punishment. Yeah, that, that's a really good answer. You know, a lot of people really struggle with reading Owen, and uh, why, why should why do pastors or even Christians just, why should they care about what John Owen has to say uh, to us? What, what can looking to pastors of the past do for our case? 
Well, that's a great question, Dave. Um, I mean, I think for, for anyone, uh, no matter what their role is in the church, uh, it, it's, it's good to be in touch with church history. It's good to remember that the faith is not something that was invented last week or last year, uh, but actually there's, there's this there's this centuries-long unfolding of Jesus' promise to build the church. And, and, you know, we can look back and in every stage of church history, there are people from whom we can learn. I think it's really good um, for, for all Christians, insofar as they're able to do this, to find a conversation partner in church history to get to know them a little bit, to get to know what their world is like, how they responded to it, and then probably also to realise that their circumstances are not totally different from our own. Um, people have, are often encouraged to buy books by own, but as you say, people often find them difficult to read. I think part of the reason for that is because um, of the format that we have them in, that they're, they're kind of clumsy books often, that, you know, the old green hardback editions, things, small prints, difficult to read. There's been lots of efforts now, um, people have made lots of efforts to try and modernise um, works by own tournaments into modernised English. Those, lots of those have been, I think, very successful. But, um, I, I mean, I think if, if there's one big thing that, that teachers of the words, perhaps, um, or those with natural responsibility should, should think about from Owen, um, it's, it's maybe some of the themes that he emphasised in the 1670s. Owen, in, his, in the early part of his ministry, had preached to large congregations, maybe up to 2,000 people attending him. They were compelled to attend his preaching because at that time the state required people to attend parish worship, and he was parish minister. But when all of that broke down and Owen found himself living really on the margins of the law, exercising a ministry that was in fact illegal in the 1660s. His congregation grew and grew and grew until it reached a grand total of 30 people. 3-0, 30 people. So, you know, Owen, Owen wrote almost half of his work when he was preaching to a tiny handful of, of, of washed up um, revolutionaries, people who had suffered with him um, after the, the, the great English Revolution came to an end. And his preaching to them is very simple and very direct. It's, it's um, easily accessed in Volume 9 of the Banner of Prison. And those sermons are very much to the point. They're designed to encourage people who have lived through some extremely discouraging circumstances. And they're very, very gospel-centred. But I think what's also very striking about them is that he emphasises the value of the congregation, the value of the body of Christians as it meets or assembles for worship. In 1673, his tiny congregation of 30 people merged with a much larger congregation of around 100 people that had been led by another Puritan minister, a friend of Owen called Joseph Carroll, but who had recently died. Owen preached a number of sermons to, to uh, I, I suppose, help these two congregations combine. And one of the things that he really emphasised in those sermons on love, on the duty of Christian love in 1673, was that congregation congregations cannot be held together by amazing pulpit gifts. So that, that that for us is a kind of striking, unexpected thing for Owen to say because we, we see him or we think of him as this commanding theological figure. But Owen in the pulpit is, is a completely different kind of person. And in the pulpit, Owen was emphasising that actually what holds a congregation together is mutual love, is concern for each other. And in fact, he said he would much rather see a congregation held together with mutual love than a congregation that was held together by shared deference to um, powerful pulpit ministry. Yeah, that, that's a really good answer. You know, uh, one thing that always has, has impressed me in reading Owen, and, I, and I've read Owen quite a bit, is his teaching on enduring sin and mortification. How does his teaching on those subjects, how does it help Christians? That, that's an interesting question, Dave. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier,
earlier on, a lot of Owen's preaching about mortification in Burlington and those kinds of themes um, was developed as he was addressing groups of teenagers. And I think that explains actually a, a lot of what he's doing in those sermons. He speaks to people at a particular moment in their life. You know, those sermons, they are, they're often quite quite searching, aren't they? Owen, I think, can see in quite an unparalleled way ways in which sin operates in individuals' lives. So, for example, one of the things that he emphasises um, in, in the books you just mentioned is that just because you're no longer tempted in a certain way, that does not mean that you've somehow gained victory over that sin. Maybe you've just grown up. So, you know, he's, he's preaching to these teenagers and, and you know, speaks very directly about some of the temptations that they may or may not have been facing. But he also recognises that as they grow up, they're not going to face these temptations anymore. But his emphasis in those books is not on, is, is not simply on escaping temptation, it's actually on experiencing victory over sin. And he looks at Romans chapter 7, famous passage uh, of conflict in Romans chapter 7, and he does not present that as normal Christian life. I think that's a really important point to emphasise because lots of people who read Owen or who've written about Owen argue that he sees Romans 7 as a normal part of Christian life. For him, if it's normal, that's a tragedy because the reality of Christian life, he believes, is found in Romans chapter 8. So it's normal or, or, or the ideal Christian life is not life under the condemnation of the law and the pervading sense of failure that Romans 7 describes. Instead, for Owen, the ideal or the normal Christian life, Christian life described in Romans chapter 8, which is spirit-filled, spirit-led, and knowing victory, knowing the reality of victory. Um, but as I said, you know, those the, 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 knowing who he is speaking to is very important because it helps you understand also what he does not say as well as what he does say. And one of the things that's really interesting about those books titles, which you mentioned earlier on, Dave, is how little Owen speaks about the church. So, you know, he, he writes these really long, really detailed, really penetrating books about indwelling sin, or about mortification of sin, and triumph over sin. He hardly ever mentions Christian fellowship, the Lord's Supper, um, or even the benefits of preaching. You know, it's very, very individual. But I think that's because he's preaching to teenagers at a particular time in their life, many of whom perhaps may not yet have been professing members of congregational churches. So there's lots in there. There's lots in there to think about. It's very easy to pick out quotations that make Owen look morbid. But in fact, Owen is interested not simply in dissecting how sin works. He's not some kind of theological clinician. He's actually interested in talking about victory and in uh, people who listen to him or read him experiencing that kind of victory over sin. So there's much in these books that's both helpful in terms of analysis, but also helpful in knowing how Owen thinks things can move beyond analysis actually into uh, triumph. Yeah, what you just said is such an important thing because, you know, one of probably one of the biggest things that I deal with in the questions I get about is sure. And they think, oh, you know, well, such a, I'm such a, I'm, I'm so different. I'm, I'm only struggling. I'm, I'm only, yeah, exactly like you said about Owen. I'm only a struggling. So your struggle becomes more concerned than, you know, walking in the and uh, you know, how are we supposed to? If you're so focused on your indwelling sin, I mean, I think the other thing is, is that Owen Owen wanted people to feel a, a strong, have a have some feel some of the weightiness of their indwelling, so that they would be driven to Christ and and know that they would know real, real, not many false. They would turn or not just be sorry for them. That's that's something that always has impressed me as I as I read Master of 
uh, it really helps us to this. And then, it, and and then, it, what does it do? It, I think it, it always, for me, it always makes me want to run to Christ and to, and to trust Christ for purpose. Yeah, I think that's an important point because people often talk about Owen as if he is this kind of clinician of the soul. Um, you know, as if he's always dissecting to work out, you know, how far sin is working or you know, where sin might have come from or, or you know, what the tendency of sin might be in your life. But, you know, as, as Owen gets to the end of his life, he's much, much less interested in those questions of introspection. You know, I think Puritans are often accused of promoting a very introspective view of salvation. Um, I, I think that accusation is a large extent there. But towards the end of his life, when Owen seems to change quite a lot of his thinking and a lot of issues, he's much less interested in the introspective analysis than he is on the objective side of Christ. Of course, as he's preparing himself to die, it's the sight of Christ that's exciting him. Uh, you know, he's no longer thinking about the progress of race in his soul. You know, he, he realises that Christ has been waiting for him, just as he has been waiting for Christ. And death, the moment of, you know, in which sanctification is complete and glorification is, you know, in, in prospect, that resurrection, that, that, that the meeting with Christ, that, that in almost like a reunion with Christ, is the moment of joy that, that, that everything in his life has been pointing towards. Yeah, that, that's really good. And it, people, think one of the reasons is, that people struggle so much with their assurance. Just what you just said. They're, they're, you know, well, maybe they don't understand indwelling sin or other things, but what they need to understand is that they have to look to God and, and to trust His beauty, to trust His loveliness, especially that cover what clouding their vision really enough. You know, if I could just add one more thing to that, okay. Dave, I think what, what, one, other, one other thing that, that sometimes uh, crops up in these kinds of conversations is the discovery that people are using the law as a way to gain assurance. In other words, if, if certain kinds of things, if they're doing certain kinds of things, they think they're going to get assurance as a consequence of that. But Owen would never suggest that the law is an instrument towards towards assurance. That his focus is completely on the spirit. It's, it's the spirit itself. It's the spirit who allows you to, to recognise the, the Abba Father relationship, Owen would say. Um, and I think you know, one of the dangers of the, the rediscovery of Puritan writing is an unhealthy overbalance, turning people towards law as if law is somehow going to bless them, but it won't. Law will only ever curse them. I think Owen is very keen that Christians see that Christ is the goal, the Spirit is the agent of that transformation, and the Father is the one who really pushes all of this forward for his own glory. Well said, brother, well said. You know, what theologians were influential and that helped shape Owen's thinking in theology? Um, that's, 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 that's a kind of a hard question to answer, I suppose, because I, I suppose, in a way, the answer is all of them. Um, um, Owen built up a massive personal library, something like 3,000 books uh, in his library. You know, there was everything in there, church fathers, um, medieval scholastic theologians, um, Lutherans, Calvinists, lots of Catholic writers, lots of Jewish writers. You know, there, there's lots and lots of stuff in there. And, and he seems to have read widely and, you know, was able to engage constructively with a lot of this, whether first-hand or, or, or a second-hand, it's not always, it's not always clear. But I think, you know, what, what's really striking about Owen is that fundamentally his theology was not shaped by theologians. Fundamentally his theology was shaped by Scripture and by the relentless, continual study of Scripture. I think the very fact that Owen considered his two or three million words commentary on Hebrews as great climax of his life's work tells you that actually we're mistaking Owen if we think of him as a theologian or as a dogmatician he is interested in theology, he does a lot of it, he publishes a lot of theological books a lot of books about dogmatics, but Owen sees himself fundamentally as a reader of scripture and he reads everything else in light of scripture and he's not scared of changing his mind, so I think one of the reputations that 
one has is of being a very schematic, structured, almost architectural kind of theologian, as if he's got this model of thinking that he's never prepared to leak. In fact, Owen changes his mind on any number of issues, some of them very small, some of them very significant, some of them significant enough that he will go into bin five years after maintaining one position to attack it as undermining the gospel. You know, so that's that's the kind of ferocity of engagement with scripture that he has. He really, really, really allows scripture to determine what he thinks the Christian life is all about. Sometimes we think of Owen as a kind of confessional theologian. Of course, he subscribes to lots of confessions and even writes a few. But in the 1650s, he gets involved in a committee that tries to reduce the entire sum of Christian theology down to 16 sentences. And he does, and he proof texts it. Everything's got verses attached to it. So, I mean, I think Owen is really well read, but fundamentally, Owen is a student of Scripture. What you just said was so good, because we can learn from you. Know, you just talked about how he can go back, and, and, I, and I don't think that I was aware of that, honestly. That, that's a really good point. But that there's something there for all of us as writers, you know, I write well articles and say, hey, you, know, you might have that position for now, you wrote an article about it or whatever. It's okay to change your mind as you keep studying Scripture. Look at, I mean, Owen is arguably one of the greatest minds, uh, you know, probably top five, top ten in, in the history of the church. And he changed his mind on things as he studied scripture. It's okay if we're writing on subjects and we change our mind as we're studying scripture, we become convinced of a different view or something like that. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's okay to, as you keep growing and keep writing and keep thinking, to keep, you know, that's part of growing in theological maturity. You know, if, if that's what you're convinced of and scripture you're convinced that scripture did it, uh, you know, and you've studied it, and it's not outside the bounds of orthodoxy, of course. That's an important qualification, you know, right on it. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Uh, where can where can people find out more about your work online, uh, either on social media or anywhere? Um, I, I, I keep a little blog. It's not it's not a very good blog. It's just really notes, but it's notes. If I do anything, I'll just put a little link up there. Um, and that blog is called puritanhistory.wordbest.com. Um, and also, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Gribben C is my, my Twitter name but I mean I'm on and off Twitter I get bored of it and turn it off and then get bored of not being on it and come back on and so on um, so G-R-I-B-B-E-N-C uh, is, my, is my Twitter name as well Nice Well there's a there's a lot that we can talk about this subject Alfred just to wrap up do you have any takeaways for our listeners? No uh, listen I just appreciate being on your show Dave thanks for the invitation to come on and chat well, I appreciate your time and your very thought excellent answer. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.